0: Thank you to the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Conservation organizations play an important role in supporting local farms and food efforts nationwide. In the heart of the Ozarks, this land trust is taking land access for farmers one step further where they're offering affordable land leases. You can learn more about the program and the farm location by contacting 479-966-4666 Information is online at www.nwafarmlink.org. That is nwafarmlink.org. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Jill Winger of the Prairie Homestead. Jill has taught thousands of people how to cook nourishing homemade meals, grow food in their backyards, and find joy in a simpler, slower life. Her new book, Old Fashioned on Purpose, releases soon and is a rallying cry for a less industrial, more intentional life. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I am so excited to chat. Absolutely. So, why do you see yourself as a reverse pioneer?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I see the maybe the original pioneers or who we consider the original pioneers is they're going, you know, into the future. There was that whole manifest destiny concept of we're going to conquer the west, we're going to get into that age of technology and forward, 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 and towards progress, and. I'm kind of doing the opposite. I feel like I'm forging new territories, but it's really going backwards in a sense and not in a negative way. More, of, I see that as a positive way is, you know, how can I go back to the past and I can um, grab some of the things that maybe we've left behind as modern humans and bring them forward for a happier, healthier future? So that's how I look at it anyway. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's still pioneering happening. And I think uh, some of it is just, um... Doing things differently yes.
2: um,
0: over the years, and uh, you know, kind of revolting against the status quo out there. Um, now, one of the things I, I we were just at the actually um, food independence summit here last week, and something I heard from a few different people is how much they feel alone in this whole journey. You know, they all their friends are you know doing the nine to five, um, you know, buying everything wrapped in plastic at the grocery store. And actually, the first chapter of your book. Is you're not alone. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, uh, what is the homesteading movement right, like right now?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's very common for us as humans, especially those of us who are compelled to push against the status quo. Um, it is very, alienating. Sometimes in the rest of culture, we're trying to find those people like us. And sometimes it feels few and far between. And so that first chapter, I really wanted to focus on a phenomenon that I've observed in the last number of years, which I found fascinating. And that is what has happened to the homesteading movement after COVID, you know, and it's something I never foresaw. I have been living this lifestyle and sharing this lifestyle since 2010 And I very much was the voice crying in the wilderness at that point. I felt very alone. Like there was no one I knew who had chickens or cows or canning or anything like that. Um, And it's steadily grown, but after 2020, it has exploded. And so I I think sometimes people still feel, you know, maybe they don't have friends in their local community that are doing what they're doing or have those mindsets or ideals. But I want people to know that that nudge and that stirring that they're feeling deep inside is drawing them towards these unconventional things. It's very much happening across culture and, and the world as a whole right now. And they're in very good company.
0: Mm. And I think creating that community for them or just those events, you know, I think that's one of the great reasons why these events are so popular is that they can go and meet other people that are doing the same thing they are.
1: Yeah. And it's really important. Like I don't live in a a community with a ton of homesteaders. I have a few more uh, colleagues and friends now that are doing pieces of the lifestyle, but I still am very much kind of the Lone Ranger. But when I go to those events a couple of times a year, I just came back from the Homestead Festival in Tennessee man, it just fills my cup. And I think honestly, for me, that's enough. I would love to have more local homesteading friends or, or farming, regenerative farming friends, but even just going a couple times a year and being reminded that, hey, this is actually way more normal than I think. There's a lot of people like me. There's a lot of people who I can commiserate with. That's really important.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, one of the things too, you talk about in your book is returning to our roots. And I, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, but What does that look like? So I think it looks like
1: different things for different people, right? So the way I look at it is, you know, in the last 150 years or so, humanity has raced towards progress and and some of that has been very good you know it's i have to be very careful as i am railing on industrialism i'm sitting here in a podcast studio right with a mic and an internet mm-hmm. connection and i have all sorts of technology and i took a hot shower last night so i'm not against all progress but you know we've had this fascination of forward movement towards technology at all costs to our health to our land to our soil to our communities and so for me, the idea of returning to our roots is just pausing for a moment. It's not about throwing away all the new, you know, and discarding all the things and and driving around with a, you know, horse and wagon or anything. Although if you want to do that, that's cool. <laughs> I support it. Yeah. But it's rather, you know, what did we leave behind? What what are the, those pieces of being human and those pieces of being connected to the land and to the soil and to nature that we have discarded accidentally as we've raced towards industrialism and technology and progress. And so that to me, it's like going back, it's getting quiet and still for a minute and just examining that.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I think part of that too, you talk about later in your book about unplugging to connect. And I think you want to expand upon that aspect.
1: Yes. So, you know, this is something that's a moving target for me as I do make my living on the internet, which is so ironic and what a crazy juxtaposition I'm I'm speaking about, you know, old fashioned skills, but I also use technology. Mm. And so for me, I, I find so many things in my life are not this strict black and white. There's so much gray and there's very few times where there's just two hardcore sides. And it's really about kind of finding the mix in the middle. And so, you know, within that I am using technology, but I also am highly aware of the addictive nature of these devices that we're using, especially social media. And as we see it start to transform our culture, I think we're at this um, beginnings of a transformation in the human brain that we cannot even fathom as we are now raising children from you know birth to be hooked on devices and iPads and phones. Mm and i'm seeing i said that part it scares me like we don't know what that's going to do to us long term and i'm not saying we throw out these devices in their entirety but i think that as someone who is old fashioned minded i'm i'm always weighing the benefits with the costs and trying to, and and working really hard to keep these devices in check in my life and so for me this old fashioned on purpose lifestyle i live really helps me to do that because it's giving me meaningful ways to connect with nature which fills a need that sometimes we reach Um, to fill with our phones instead. And it's giving me meaningful things to do with my hands and my brain that we're often, again, using our phones and our devices to fill. And so, you know, it's still a balance. It's still a juggling act for me, but I think Mm -hmm. that it's a really important way that we can kind of get back in touch
0: with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, occasionally my wife and I'll go out to dinner or we're in Costco for, you know, that once a month trip over there and you see the kid in the basket or in the table and the family's sitting at a restaurant, eating dinner, everyone on their own device. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, how is that? How is that affecting us psychologically, mentally? Um, uh, even in spiritually, you know, not having yes. that connection that you had that we were created for. Um, yes. so it's, it's very scary. Um, yeah. And I mean, yes, me and my wife both have cell phones and we use them more than we probably should. Um, but that aspect of, you know, just leaving them someplace. Um, and obviously because we have businesses we need to be available, but being able to leave them and just unplug for hours at a time is so key. And I just think, uh, so healing.
1: Amen. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest pieces, like you said, well, it's, it's missing that face-to-face interaction, which studies have shown that our kids need that. They need us to speak to them, not someone on an iPad to speak to them, but they need us to speak to them and they can hear our inflections in our voice and read our facial expressions and hear Mm -hmm. the language together. That's so important for their development. Um, But I also think about, you know, the best ideas historically, and even in my own life have come from solitude and a little bit of boredom, healthy boredom, Mm -hmm. where I don't have the input from other people constantly filling my mind. And I look at these children, like some of them might be the ones who, you know, cure major diseases or solve big problems, but they're not getting a chance to just simmer in that boredom. And there were Mm -hmm. we're just pumping them full of, you know, frenetic input from all these different sources. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to lose in upcoming generations? What problems won't be solved because there's no time to think about things.
0: Yeah. Um, am actually my wife and I were talking about that specific thing of like, you know, what, what the, what's the forward of the human race that is being lost because we're all addicted to the phones. Yes. So absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little about consumerism because you go into that as well. So obviously we're driven to, I mean, with the Amazon culture, and unfortunately it's very convenient, but how is that hurting us as well? Yeah. And so it's another thing, you
1: know, I, in my research for this book, I did a ton of reading and studying and, and the, the time period that kept coming to the forefront over and over again was this uh, about 150 years ago with really when the industrial revolution started taking off. And one of the most shocking things to me that I, I discovered in the research of this book, which maybe to others, they'd be like, well, duh. But to me, to really see it in writing was incredible. But, you know, consumerism as we know it today is a very modern construct. And we are so, and I'm we, I mean, me included up until this point was so indoctrinated in it. I just assumed it was how humans have always been since the beginning of time that Mm. we exist to buy and we exist to consume. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, And you can actually see in the 1920s, and then it kind of picked up again after World War II, where there was very much a concentrated push by the great minds of industry to get the public hooked on this idea of needing more, um, never having enough, and needing the, the latest shiny object. And it's not that humans didn't need things before. For that era, but it was more on a, uh, you know, they actually needed it just to survive sort of situation. There wasn't this idea of excess and, oh, oh, this is the newest thing. I'm going to throw out this old thing and that whole throwaway culture idea. And so what we see happening in ourselves, I think, is when we get so hooked into that consumerism ideology is that we lose a piece of ourselves and we get kind of on that, what we call the rat race or the hamster wheel of gotta make more money to buy this thing and rinse mm. and repeat. And, you know, it gets very much just soul crushing. And so, you know, not only are we not created to just be consumers, we're created to be, um, producers and creators ourselves, mm-hmm. but we're missing out on all of these pieces of being human, you know, being connected to nature, um, growing things, producing things, having a hand in where our food comes from, we miss out on all of that when we subscribe so wholeheartedly to this consumer mindset. And so it's not that I never buy things. I still buy things from Amazon sometimes, mm-hmm. which I kind of try to avoid it, but it happens. I
0: know.
1: You know, it happens sometimes, it, especially when you live rurally, it's like, it's just way easier yeah. to get it on, Amazon.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it's also going, oh, like, how can I? Con- I'm gonna consume. I know I'm gonna consume because it's I do live in 2023, but how can I also be a producer? And I think weaving those two ideas together is absolutely crucial.
0: Well, I think there's something too about that whole aspect of producing something that is inherent to our self-worth. Of yes. I grew this, I made this, I produced this. Um, you know, that's something that I love building, I love creating. And you know, you stand back and look at the project and I'm like there you go, it's done. Um, and there's that. Uh, yeah, I think that and I think that's the original dopamine hit, you know, Absolutely. compared to when we're just, you yes. know, watching a two minute, you know, YouTube video or something. Um, But, you know, I, it, you know, it's case in point talking about this is, you know, the phone used to like, you know, the phone on the wall of your home. Used to, you know, it was 20 years, 30 years, would sit there for 20 years, 30 years, the same phone. I mean, I don't know if we all remember going to our grandparents' house and that phone was on the wall and it was always there, our entire childhood. Um, but now we swap out our phones every year, or 18 months or two years. So just case in point on that aspect of, you know, moving from thing to thing.
1: Yeah. And there was if you look it up, if you Google, it, it's called planned obsolescence, where, Uh I mean, people build that in That was started decades ago where this idea of like, wait a second, if we build it too good, then they don't have to buy it again. So Uh built in. And sometimes that's when things are designed to break after a time. And sometimes it's, you know, they train us that, oh, that's out of style. So you don't want that. You need the latest iPhone. And so it's fascinating when you start to realize the forces at work. My contrarian self, my hackles go up and I'm like, oh no, I'm going to do the opposite. So I just like to learn about how it all came to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, even like we were at the, that, that, that conference we were at and it was sponsored by superb canning lids, which are these really, really heavy duty American made. I think they're the only company that is American made canning lids. And, um, you know, just looking at the quality of that and it's more expensive, but you know, those lids are going to do the best for you. Yes. Yes. Um, now, uh, you also talk about escape the human zoo. What's the human zoo?
1: So um, I didn't come up with this term. I, I found it in some research paperwork. and I'd have to pull it up to get the exact name. I could give it to you for the show notes if you were interested. But um, a researcher, he he called our modern atmospheres, or or maybe rather, you know, the, the environments that we're living in, human zoos, because they're so unnatural in terms of what humans have living, been living in for the thousands of years prior to the industrial revolution, right? And so he, he says that humans are more malnourished. They're, they're more miserable. They're more depressed. They're more sick than they've ever been. And when we look at the environments that we are in, especially those who may not be as involved in, you know, an agricultural or a farming lifestyle, we're just surrounded by things that humans have made. We're not surrounded by anything natural and. Not only does that, I think, leave us feeling a little bit out of sorts mentally, but also physically that can really affect us when we start to look at the effects of artificial light on our bodies or um, not being connected or grounded to the earth, not touching soil. There's actually microbes in soil that have antidepressant effects. And there's interesting studies about when we connect our skin to the earth, what it does for us. And so um, in that chapter, I really wanted to focus on how we can step outside of the zoo for a time, even if you live in the middle of New York city, because I definitely have people who follow me who do not live in Wyoming, that don't live in the Midwest Mm or on a farm. And I wanted to give them encouragement. Like you can be more connected to nature into the environment that your body is designed to be in. You don't have to go roll around in the grass naked all the time, but you can Mm -hmm. do little things that'll bring your body back into that that sense of um, grounding and well-being.
0: And I think there's nothing wrong with our kids rolling around the grass naked. Um, I mine do, (laughs) mine (laughs) absolutely. Us adults might you need know, to want a little more what privacy do? than, <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, definitely, you know, even like, you know, playing, plain in the dirt. I mean, that is definitely something where, you know, a, a good day is when the kids need a bath. Yes. I, amen. Yep. Yeah. Um, so with this, I mean, you have the, you teach homesteading, but you also have a couple of ever enterprises. Let's talk a little bit about them. You have a soda fountain in your small town, uh, Chug Water Soda Fountain. Talk to us a little bit about the, what, what, how did that come to be?
1: That is a great question. Cause it was definitely not something that I had uh, foresaw happening in my life. So, uh, you know, we were very much devoted to just homesteading and only homesteading from about two 2000- thousand. 10 till I guess about 2020. Um, and that we were very much isolated. We stayed home a lot. I didn't really care to reach out to my community. I make myself sound really, uh, horrible, but I mean, it was just, we were friendly, but it just, I was not prioritizing community at all. Mm -hmm. I was very much prioritizing my business and we would travel a lot. So I Mm -hmm. felt like a lot of my contacts were out of area instead of in area and it worked like my, I grew the business. It was extremely successful. I, it was, it was great. It was, it was wonderful. But then I started to have this pull, especially I think 2020 really kicked it off. Um, and I'm like, man, you know, I have all these skills and this knowledge that I've gained from building this business. And I'm so grateful to have had those experiences, but I really feel like, I felt like I was kind of, um, neglecting my local area. I felt like I wasn't offering any of those gifts back to my community. And so as we began to make more connections here, my husband and I started to talk, you know, what would that look like if we invested more in our community? Our homestead was doing good. Our businesses were doing good. We felt like pretty pretty solid and secure in those. So we're like, we have these talents that we've been given. How can we invest back? And so I wouldn't say this is the path for everybody, but for us, it was uh, investing in this little tumbledown restaurant. We bought it in 2021. It needed a lot of repair. It was in It was in bad shape, but it had potential. And so- and so I saw that potential and we decided to, to go after it. And so it has been a, a, a big project. It took us about a year to renovate it. Um, mm. It was in bad, bad shape. So we had to go gut it basically. And then, you know, figuring out staff. And I've never worked in food service. When I was in high school, I cleaned stalls at a horse barn and I worked at Jiffy Loop. Mm-hmm. So I never <laughs> a waitress job. So I had yeah. no clue. So we were figuring out food costs and where to buy food and how to staff. And, you know, it's been a major learning curve, um, but it's been a mm-hmm. gift even in the hard times, both to us and to the community and what we've seen happen, you know, we were talking about that community aspect and how important it is just to be face to face with people. It, it, for me, it's a, it's that it's, it is the um, embodiment of that for me. And it gets me out of my, my office. It gets me off of my computer. It gets me away from my own little selfish goals and desires. And it puts me back in a place of being able to connect with community members. And I'm not there every day we have staff. And so I'll go in a couple of times a month and work, or I'll visit, you know, a couple of times a week, um, check on things, but I'm not there every day, but it's been really, really awesome to see that take place.
0: Mm. And with that, what would you say your biggest lessons and takeaways from starting that business have been?
1: Mm. Oh, wow. So many, um, restaurants are harder than they look. And I have a new appreciation for anybody who works those sort of jobs. Mm. Um, I a big lesson has been with these rural communities, you know, there's so much talk about how rural America is dying or rural America's on its way out. And I don't see that to be the case. I think there's so much potential here, but it does take a visionary. And so somebody, if you're, especially, I'm speaking to those living in a rural area, maybe want to see some revival. Somebody has got to be willing to stick their neck out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's mm-hmm. a reason that people don't want to do that because then you put yourself on the platform for criticism and all the fun things that go with that. But as my husband and I did stick our neck out, you know, we did experience criticism. We have experienced some things that weren't exactly pleasant, but also the rewards on the other side of that and being the ones to take that responsibility and say, you know what, some, instead of saying someone should do something about this, we're going to say, we'll be the ones to do something about this Mm -hmm. has been one of the most rewarding things I think we've ever done. So, um, it's worth it. It's scary, but it's worth it.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting a little bit. of You know, we started our our farm and uh, it's an urban farm. So we're surrounded by 5,500 other people in our little city. Yeah. Um, but, you know, since we started, that has really been the big catalyst for change. You know, I got, we got in, we've, we argued and fought with the city and discussed with the city for two years until I decided to be given the city council. And then that has just really helped push, you know, other big changes. I mean, we now have a completely new staff in our city that is um doing things differently and you know that takes someone being willing to come in, stick their neck out fight a little bit and uh and make it happen and it's it's yeah when you just you said stick your neck out push it's not always easy it's not always you know there's definitely some people that do not like me
1: <laughs> oh amen like, yeah all, all long. like we are yep
0: <laughs> but uh you know it's to us it's important i mean we want to raise our kids here we want to build a community that they um, are, are proud to grow up in and excited about. Yes. And part of that is, uh, getting rid of ridiculous, um, uh, city regulations. Um, we just passed getting, having chickens al- available to be had in the city limits. So, um, oh, excellent. yeah, that was, uh, that was, it took way longer than I wanted it to be. And it passed on a very narrow vote, but we made it happen. So yeah.
1: it's amazing to me how, I mean, yes, it does take a village and it takes a community, but one person who's uh-huh. driven, uh-huh. Man,
0: they
1: can do a lot, and the ways they can start creating are is substantial. So I, you know, I say people don't ever, don't ever underestimate what you can do and what your grit can accomplish.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, here's the thing: most people will just go with the flow. So if you can start your own little mini movement and build a, if it literally, if three people show up at our city council meeting, that can make the difference between a law passing and a law not passing.
1: Yep,
0: it's yep. massive. How just a little bit of public pressure um, makes this massive swing. So again, your vote does count your uh, your are scene, especially on the very small level. I mean, on national level. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot right. of times it's just you shrug your shoulders and talk about the military industrial um, conspiracy theory complex out yep. there, which is um, you know, not much we can do about it. But on the local level, you can absolutely make change. Yes, local matters big time. Yeah. I'm back with Susan from the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust, and today we're talking about one of the holes that we see in the market, and they do as well, with the loss of the local wholesale farm. So Susan, with this project you're working on in Northwest Arkansas, you're open to all different types of farmers, but one of the things that you're actually doing a lot of work around is to kind of rebuild the local wholesale market, right?
2: Absolutely correct. Northwest Arkansas has a rich history of fruit and vegetable production. It was known for its apples, it was known for grapes and other types of tomatoes, all kinds of really great, you know, produce. But that's been lost over the years for a number of reasons, and we recognize that the demand is there and we are just trying to, you know, help farmers both existing and new understand the potential benefits for wholesale markets and institutional so schools and hospitals etc so there's a lot that's happening within our work to strengthen that local food system so we now have a food hub that can help aggregate and part of the work includes a processing facility state of the art that will bring buyers and sellers together and also really benefit food entrepreneurs that want to be, you know, making value added products. So this is all a piece of the NWA food systems initiative. And our role as the land trust is to help, you know, preserve farmland and then get farmers on that land access. But there's all these other pieces that are going on to ensure farm viability way into the future.
0: Very cool, Susan. And if you want to find out more about the work that the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust is doing and the affordable, stable land leases they are offering, you can go to www.nwafarmlink.org or call 479-966-4666. Now you also have a beef business. Talk a little bit about that.
1: We do. Yes. So that happened. Um, it was a ways into our homesteading journey. And so, you know, with our homestead stuff, it's really just personal food production. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case for most folks in that world. It's just about food for ourselves. But then one dream that my husband and I had carried, honestly, I think we talked about it on our first date was we'd always wanted to be immersed in the ranching lifestyle and neither one of us had been raised in that world. And so we were, you know, really passionate about how could someday we own land and cattle and and be a part of that world. And so, as our homesteading progressed and as our businesses progressed, we had this opportunity. And this, this I, I don't know if this was a wise decision, but it's this decision we made. We're like, we had some extra money to invest, and we're like, well, do we invest it in the stock market or do mm. we invest it back into our into another business venture? And so, we chose to invest it in um, cattle. And so, we bought bought some cattle from a neighbor. We made a lease agreement on some land down the road from us. Cause we, we have 67 acres on our personal property, but mm. we needed more than that to run beef cattle. And so we, we created this relationship and our goal was to raise farm to table beef. We decided to skip the middlemen. We, you know, mm-hmm. around us, we live in a ranching world and they all kind of do that typical model cow calf, you go to sale barn and, you know, off they go. And we decided to do it a little different. And so that, created this company we call genuine beef, where we raise grass finished Hereford cattle here, just right down the road from where we live. And then we ship that nationwide. So that's been really gratifying. It's been interesting to go from personal food production to commercial food production, Mm -hmm. big learning curve, especially with shipping perishable products was not easy, Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's been good. And it also, I think for us, it's really a lifestyle business. Like we love having the cattle. We love working the cattle with our children and doing the brandings and, you know, all the things that go with it. And so it's not a huge, it's not the biggest part of our enterprise, honestly, just because I haven't been able to put as much marketing power towards it, but it's Mm -hmm. been a really gratifying part.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I think there's always something about having your kids around a business. And you know, that's one of the reasons we have businesses. And I know the kids sometimes are like, why do we have to do this again? Like I want to, you know, I want to take the week off and go to the lake or something like that. we're like, well, we're stuck here with the business. And I think it's, it's seasons, a, it's seasons. And so there are seasons of busyness and we are starting, we are starting to really build a cohesive team now. Um, that is giving us a little bit of more freedom of seasons of freedom. Um, but it also is so important for those kids to understand that from hard work comes being able to go do what you want. Um, that there is going to be that investment. I mean, like it's, um, it's, you know, the cause and effect. I think that yes. if, 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 kids really understood that aspect and building that business with them and showing them how it works and again, showing the real side of farming, you know, there's pain, there's, you know, there's death sometimes. And, um, that makes a much, much more round rounded, small human being.
1: Absolutely. And that's really, honestly, as we've undergone all these crazy mm-hmm. business ventures, having our kids at the front row of that has been, I think one of the very best parts. And it does keep me going on the days where I'm like, Oh my gosh, why are we doing this? It's like, Nope, they're watching and they're watching the lessons and they're, they're grasping these lessons and they're going to carry it forward. So it's, it's so gratifying.
0: Mm. Now you also have a blog the and I think that's probably a lot of what started a lot of this. Um, and you get some great articles why good potting soil is important, um nutritional needs of chickens, um what you've been reading lately. Um, talk to us a little bit about the blog. Yeah, so the blog started. we
1: bought our property back in two thousand eight, and I didn't have aspirations of being a, a blogger or doing anything online, honestly. It was still that that world was still very new at that point. I don't even know if YouTube was really a thing. Um, Facebook was barely a thing. And so I I basically just started the blog because we was doing this homesteading stuff and it was, felt so novel to me. And it kind of to bring the conversation full circle. I felt very alone because I didn't mm. have anyone doing anything even remotely close to this. And so I wanted to talk about it, but all my local people, friends and family, were like, ew like, stop. <laughs> so yeah. I want to hear about your homemade yogurt Gross.
0: Um, so <laughs> even though it's way more delicious than the yes, store. stuff.
1: I'm like, you don't know how good this is. And they're like, stop talking. Um, anyway. So I was like, I I'm going to explode if I don't tell someone about this yogurt and this garden and my home ground wheat flour. And so I yeah. started blogging as kind of this way to, you know, verbally process everything I was doing. And I, I make it sound short, you know, fast forward, five years later, and it was a full-time job. That's, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the middle where I, you know, I kept at it. No one was reading it. No one was reading it. I didn't care because it was just for me. And then I started to get traction and then it started to become more popular. And then I started to realize I could monetize it. And so it became really the uh, foundational piece of our, what has now become our family enterprises was Mm -hmm. that Prairie Homestead blog. But it started off very much just as a personal passion project of just sharing my love for this old fashioned lifestyle.
0: Mm. -hmm. And what has the, I mean, what has the feedback been, especially lately? Like what are people interested in right now?
1: Mm, Great question. Yeah. So, um, it's, I'm always, since I am a marketer, I love marketing. I'm always listening to what's the problem and what are the concerns? And, you know, I think recently, um, it's people are really wanting to break free of the systems. You know, and that Mm. really started with COVID right around COVID time. The problems I was solving was very, was more tangible. Like everyone was starting a garden. So they wanted that information. Everyone was making sourdough bread. So they wanted that kind of baseline information. And now a lot of people have adopted those first principles and they're looking at how can I break out of more systems? And how can I find that freedom? And, and do I really have to do things like I've been told I have to do them? And so speaking to that has been, I think, really helpful to a lot of people. It's also fun to talk about on my end, but it's fun to see the homestead cultures shift and kind of change over time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So breaking out of the system, so breaking out of the systems of the grocery store, kind of expand a little bit on what systems are people seeing that they want freedom from?
1: Yeah. So I, I kind of think of it in four systems. Let me see if I can just rattle them off here at the top of my head without, <laughs> without writing them down first. Um, So the first one is definitely food and mm. home setting is so much food. So, you know, we talk a lot about that. Another one is just the world of modern medicine. It's not that it's mm. always bad, but sometimes we get into the the world of big pharma and it gets real sticky. Um, So a lot of people are looking at how can I not only maybe use herbs or other remedies to to help my body, but how can I make sure I'm not getting those modern diseases in the first place? Those lifestyle
0: diseases. Yeah, well, um, and how to not be um, addicted to modern pharma too.
1: Yes, I think that, that's, that's a big one.
0: Incredibly important. I mean, I forget what percentage, but it's amazing what percentage of people have a med- have a medication subscription that end their life if they don't have it. And then we've recently seen some massive shortages and that gets yes. real, real scary.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah, when, when it's not there, um, what do you do? And that's, yeah, I, 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 would love to, you know, Lord willing, not to ever be in that position where I have to have something just to survive. So that's my goal is to keep my body as healthy as I can. Some things are out of my control. Um, yeah. so we're not in that position. Yeah. Um, So medicine's a big one, the education system. Um, I was actually homeschooled K through 12 and we homeschool our children. And so that's been something, you know, I've always been passionate about home education, but like. In the last few years, I've really dug into the history of public education and how it came to be. And I think it's fascinating. It's not that I think every single person in the world needs to homeschool or should homeschool, but I think that um, just understanding our modern systems and their weaknesses and how we as parents, even if your kids are in public school, how you can kind of adjust for those um, weak spots in the system, I think is really, really crucial to help our kids become really powerful adults later on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, doing some of the man, uh research is kind of kind of scary.
1: Yeah, it's real
0: scary. Have you read John Taylor Gatto at all? I have not. My wife has. Um yeah. she'll she'll just tell me things and then I'll yes. be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I appreciate that."
1: Yep. <laughs> and you're like, "Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. shocking." I mean, yeah. even even having been homeschooled, you know, a homeschool graduate when I read John Taylor Gatto a number of years ago, I was like, "Oh my gosh." Like, I have yeah. no idea. Like, this is, my mind is blown. It's-
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of people, they come in and they're like, well, you so obviously you had a business degree. And I was like, uh, no, the reason we have what we have is because I didn't have a business degree because yes. I feel like that shoebox you too much. Totally. Like a business degree tells you, oh, you need to be doing this very specific, small-minded thing. You need to be the cog in the wheel, even though you're supposed to be in business. But the background of homeschooling To me, homeschooling helps you learn to ask the right questions. Yes. And when you start asking questions, then you have infinite freedom in your life.
1: Yes. And and I think questions are where where it's at that Mm -hmm. I'm so passionate about. Questions and being willing to you know questioning the systems if we're talking about systems is that first step that so many people can't don't even get to that first step because we've been taught to not ask questions and that the systems teach us not to ask questions especially in the educational world so if we can get to that point especially and give that to our kids that is such a gift
0: yeah I see one of your top books is Sacred Cow which is awesome but I think just you know thinking about sacred cows in general and that's one of the reasons why public education is there is to make sure we don't question the sacred cows of society.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, on a side note, we, so we are homeschoolers. We're also helping start a charter school in our little community in that, oh, very the same cool. community with the Soto fountain. It's yeah. a project-based school. And, um, I don't, I still don't know how we got into this cause it's been quite the, the hairy project, but like watching as we've gotten into the belly of the public education system at the mm-hmm. state level and the County level to get this charter school off the ground this, my husband and I have said that that the sacred cows that these people hold and protect with their life. It's, it's so fascinating. Like you do not question them. Like even our existence as a charter school is so threatening to their cows (laughs) that they, they have come after us in the most unbelievable ways possible. But yeah, when I see that I'm like, Oh, you guys are protecting this. Okay. I think it's time to like, figure out why this is so sacred and let's poke some holes in it. So that's my personality, which gets me in trouble sometimes, but it also (laughs) It's kind of exciting,
0: so I like it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to lose the other half of my uh, podcast audience here, but um, recently there was that uh, a couple of different documentaries and a couple of different, as I call them, hit pieces on the homeschooling movement. Yeah. Um, and I actually did a Facebook post, and I basically put it out there. It's like, you know, this is nothing but a hit piece. And I said, um, I started just quoting some some homeschooling um, statistics and how, you know, basically I think it costs, was it $25,000 a year? to educate a kid in a public school, but homeschoolers pay, you know, maybe spend $600 in education. I talked about the test scores and I talked about all this. It's very interesting because I have a wide audience of friends and I have people that are more than happy to set me right if they feel like I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. The comments on there was just, there was like none. A, I think it was kind of the shadow band because again yeah. of the, uh, that, but also they couldn't argue with, you know, 30 years of now at home education that yes. have, um, a hundred percent, um, shown that it is a, definitely a superior education system. And, you know, I'm sorry if, if, if people disagree with me on that, if you're a public school educator that you, you know, again, there are some wonderful folks out there in the public yes. education system. There's nothing against them. But I'm saying if you can afford to, and I don't know if you can't afford not to homeschool your kids to me it is the biggest change you can make to put your kids in the right direction. I
1: couldn't agree more. Yes, yes, yes.
0: All right. So I think we got through three. What's the fourth system?
1: Yeah. The fourth system is kind of the, what I call the nine to five rat race. And I'm not saying everyone should be an entrepreneur. I think some people are not wired to be entrepreneurs. But I, with that system, I just invite people to rethink, you know, a lot of people hate their jobs. So Mm. many people hate their jobs. We have this idea that, you know, you, you, you have to go to a job that you just nominally tolerate and you do your, your, your 40 years and then you retire and, and that's how it is. And you just plug along. And I just would invite people to rethink that. It's not that everyone should start a business, although I think it's awesome if you do, cause I'm, I'm very much an entrepreneurial minded person. So I, you know, of course want everyone to start a business even, you know, regardless, yeah. but I think just rethinking that, do you have to do something you hate to live? No, you don't. Um, does it have to be? 40 hours a week. Like we've been told like that, that is they they're finding now, if you get into some of these more forward thinking companies, like you can get the same amount of work done and you don't have to be there eight to five every Mm -hmm. single day. You don't have to be sitting Mm -hmm. in a cubicle every day. There's different ways to get that same amount of um, stuff done. And so just inviting people to think outside of that system, kind of that factory mindset and how can you create the life you really want? How can you do something that really lights you up instead of just being a cog in the machine?
0: Yeah, I think that I think isn't the statistic that most uh, heart attacks occur on Sundays. Yeah, because uh, people are so like oh I got to go back to work tomorrow and they stress out. So, yes. um but yeah, I I absolutely, you know, that's another thing I'm super passionate about and I really actually want to have a conference on that specific thing is, you know, basically the whole aspect of yes, leaving the system, starting your own business and the freedom. And yes, it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy. The the the, the entrepreneurial roller coaster is gives you gray hair. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> um, and uh, but it's also incredibly freeing and it's also just incredibly satisfying. To, a, the, the impact you can have, and the um, you know, it, just understanding what makes business tick and what makes marketing tick, and just being able to understand um, psychology, the psychology of, of uh, people in a consumer mindset, and just how you can avoid that and live a, a yes. different and a freeing life.
1: Yes. It all works together. It all ties, it all ties together.
0: Yeah. So the last chapter of your book, um, which you've been kind of talking through a little bit is the next frontier. Where are we going? Mm,
1: yeah. So in that book, I kind of cast a vision of what I hope, where I hope we're going. I, you know, I don't know what the future holds. I know there's a lot of, if you go on the internet, especially a lot of doom and gloom a lot of, uh, you know, Oh my gosh, the world's ending. It's over. It's done. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I tend to be a little more optimistic maybe than your typical naysayers online. Um, I do see this trend and this obsession in a certain percentage of the populace with the technology, especially as AI and things like the metaverse come about. And I can't help but wonder how far the pendulum has to swing Mm. into those entirely artificial existences before we realize that's just not going to work. For us Hmm. as humans, we're still biological creatures. We're still flesh and blood. We're still designed to be in our natural habitats. Um, And so, you know, I kind of play with those ideas on that last chapter, but what I, what I, the conclusion I come to spoiler alert (laughs) um, is I think that no matter what happens, that I think there's always going to be a measure of the populace who is just obsessed with those ideas. You know, the people who are out there to make a buck, to kind of conquer the the world. They want to see us all plugged into the same sort of ideas and they're always going to be there there are mm. always going to be that that force in the story but no matter what happens in the coming decades those old principles that we know to be true um those of working with our hands and being connected to nature and being a producer instead of a consumer and connecting with our communities those are always going to hold true that is in the very fiber of our human existence and so as long as we can lean into those and and hold on to those doesn't say that doesn't mean we still can't play with some technology or, um, dink around with some AI every once in a while. But as long as we hold on to those principles, I think we'll be in a good place. So I think it's, a, it's crucial that we continue to carry them forward mm-hmm. and teach them to our children. So I feel, I feel optimistic when I look at the growing tide of people who are wanting to go back to their roots, who are feeling this pull, there's something inside us as humans. If you look historically, whenever things get shaky, we go back to nature We go back Mm. to the land and it's happening now. And it gives me hope that this rising tide of homesteading people and and farming folk and regeneratively minded folks, we're going to be able to just keep things in balance. So that's, that's my perspective, at least.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, that is great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Jill. We really appreciate your perspective. And um, you know, I, I think the thing with that we've discovered with our farm, you know, again, you're a homesteader coming on more of a farming podcast. And yes, we talked a little bit of business and trying to understand that, but I think there's a tremendous opportunity for farmers to support the homesteading movement. Yes. Um, and I mean, like we're seeing phenomenal success with, you know, again, I, our elderberry willow. Um, comfrey, um, you know, those plant um products are just exploded in our business in the last couple of years. Um, teaching, you know, on-farm classes, we're seeing a huge demand for the canning, the sourdough, um, even like just you know, patio gardening, because there is a lot of people that that yearn for this aspect of of starting to go down this journey, but they're still stuck in suburbia. So, how can we support them, teach them, supply what they need to succeed, and um, help all of us, you know, as you said uh, leave the unplugged from the system.
1: Yes. Yeah. And just to speak to those farmers in your audience, I I feel like there is so much synergy and as a homesteader, I'm pretty hardcore. I still don't grow everything. And so I'm always looking for farmers locally or ranchers who can help fill in those gaps of my food purchasing. So I would Mm -hmm. say if you can find the homestead groups in your area or the homestead people and really figure out how you can serve them and connect with them, it'll, it'll pay off
0: in a big way. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jill. Thanks for having me.